This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Kids say some of the most remarkable things. In 2014, when one of our daughters was just five years old, she asked Kendall why her friend Grace was coming over. To which Kendall responded, her mom goes to work one day a week. Of course, our daughter asked what the mother did, and Kendall told her she was in the Air Force. By now, the wheels were beginning to turn in our daughter's mind, and the questions kept coming. What's the Air Force, she asked. It's another branch of the military, Kendall replied. To which our daughter, without missing a beat, asked, oh, so they only work one day a week in the Air Force? Out of the mouth of babes. <laughs> By the way, it seems that the Air Force has taken its share of ridicule for the past couple weeks. <laughs> I think I need to mention that our Air Force friend was in the reserves, and she's honorably been, she has honorably retired as a lieutenant colonel. And yes, the Air Force was just one of her many occupations. We certainly have some great sayings in our home. Raising five children has delivered its own share of sayings, quips, and malaprops. That's the actual mistaken use of a word in place of a similar sounding one. I've had my share too. You may not recognize the name malaprop, but I am here to, I'm sure you're familiar with them. For example, instead of saying we're going to sing a cappella, every good Baptist knows you say we're going to sing acapulco. Or remember when George W. Bush said in 2001 that we cannot let terrorists and rogue nations hold this nation hostile or hold our allies hostile. We think he meant hostage. Or when Yogi Bear described Texas as having a lot of electrical votes. We're never quite sure what Yogi Bear ever meant, but it's electoral, not electrical that Texas holds in our republic. These are just a few malapropisms. But also in that linguistic family are some great words that our kids have created. Words we have written down, and as good parents, we're excited to be able to use against them one day <laughs> when the time is right. For example, we can never call them Rice Krispie Treats anymore. Not after having one son call them rice Christmas treats. And zebra cakes, those tasty little Debbie pastries that somehow one son seems to survive on, they became the name for the animal at the zoo that shares the same color coordination as the tasty treat. Yes, zebras at the zoo are zebra cakes. It's not vanilla, it's Denova. That's the easier way to pronounce it. And at least one of our children has accused another child of not sharing and being very shellfish. <laughs> Youngins are onions for another child. And when one hurt his pinky finger, he complained that his pinky promise had been broken. <laughs> Would you believe that it was this type of malaprop that instigated the writing of one of our most beloved hymns? In the mid-20th century, two prominent Christian musicians, John W. Peterson 
and Alfred B. Smith, both of which lived into the 21st century, wrote many of the hymns that we sing today. In fact, Peterson, as a songwriter, has had a major influence on evangelical Christian music in the 1950s and through the 1970s. He wrote over a thousand songs. Some of his songs include, Jesus is Coming Again, Oh, It is Wonderful to Be a Christian, and He Owns the Cattle on a Thousand Hills. I still have a copy of the John Peterson hymnal, Great Hymns of the Faith. I grew up with that hymnal. And Smith is often called the dean of gospel music. He was a composer, a gospel soloist, song leader, lecturer, and authority on church music, recording artist, and a music publisher. His work actually lives on in the hymnal called Living Hymns, now published by Striving Together Publications out of Lancaster Baptist Church in California. Now, occasionally, Peterson and Smith would collaborate on hymns together. One day, while Peterson was improvising at his piano in his Pennsylvania studio, Albert Smith walks in. Smith had a letter from one of the descendants of Philip Bliss. Now, Bliss was another hymn writer of the 19th century. He wrote, almost persuaded, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let the lower lights be burning. Wonderful words of life. And the tune for Horatio Spafford's song, it is well with my soul. In the letter, the descendant of Bliss told the story of Philip Bliss's first country school teacher, Miss Murphy, a teacher Philip Bliss dearly loved. The letter told of her teaching the class to memorize the 23rd Psalm. She taught this even before the students could learn to read or write. Everything was based on hearing recognition. So when the part Surely goodness and mercy was reached. Little Philip thought the teacher was saying, Surely good Miss Murphy shall follow me all the days of my life. <laughs> this malaprop, if you will, caused Smith and Peterson to focus their thoughts on that phrase, which became the heart of a title of one of the most well-known hymns by them. The two started to develop a new song. Peterson, Peterson would come up with the thought, then Smith, and in a short time, surely goodness and mercy was born. Do you recall the words? A pilgrim was I, and a wandering. In the cold night of sin I did roam, when Jesus the kind shepherd found me. And now I am on my way home. He restoreth my soul when I'm weary. He giveth me strength day by day. He leads me beside the still waters. He guards me each step of the way. When I walk through the dark, lonesome valley, my Savior will walk with me there. And safely, His great hand will lead me to the mansions He's gone to prepare. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. All the days, all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and I shall feast at a table spread for me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days, all the days of my life. I have only ever met one shepherd in my life. Well, I think I've only ever met one, 
I'm talking about a genuine, cares for the sheep, carries a staff, sleeps with the sheep shepherd. It was in 2011. I was in Jordan. I was visiting Petra with, the, with some sailors from the ship, and as was our custom when we would pull into a port, I would gather any interested sailors, and we would go on a hike. And since we were visiting Petra, a group of us decided to look and just see what is the highest point in Petra, and we were going to climb up there. So we began climbing, hand over hand, bouldering, just rocks. I mean, this was rugged climbing. We get up to the top of the mountain. No sooner had we crawled up there, dusty, dirty, when I hear out from behind me, hello. I turn, and there was the shepherd. We get to the top, and there's this Arab standing there, and in broken English, he says, I am Tariq, the caveman. If anyone introduces themselves... As a caveman, there's an unwritten rule that you must have a conversation with that person. So we began to talking. He and his broken English and, and just a group of us guys talked to him. Now we found out that he was a shepherd and he invited us to his home. And sure enough, up in the rocks, it was a cave carved out by the Romans in the side of a rock. He was... In fact, a caveman. Now, we enjoyed some tea, and as we were about to descend the way we came down, we're walking towards there, and he asked us, why are you going that way? Someone responded with, well, that's the way we came up. And we asked then, why don't you take the stairs? <laughs> and he points over, and sure enough, in the rock, by those same industrious Romans was a staircase carved into the side of the rock completely up that mountain. And so we went down the stairs. <laughs> and that was my first and I think my only, my last encounter with a shepherd. The shepherd directed me in the way I should go. You know, we also have a shepherd who directs our paths. He's the good shepherd. And we have one of the most beautiful biographical sketches of this great shepherd by the fact that it's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We could even say autobiographical sketches of this great shepherd who has given his life for the sheep. Would you take a look with me at Psalm 23? It's my hope that after this evening, we will renew our appreciation for the beauty of this psalm. And be reminded of that faithful and tender loving care and patient care of the shepherd and bishop of our souls. This psalm rightly bridges the gap between Old Testament promises of a Messiah and the New Testament fulfillment of Jesus, the good shepherd. You're familiar with this psalm. I find that I have used it many times in my ministry. In fact, there were times when I am sitting there out in Iraq and we've got these Marines about to go on patrol and I would just recite with them the, the Psalm 23 before they left. 
I was at Dover Air Force Base when a family sat there and watched the remains of their Marine come off the plane. And as the Marines carried that flag-draped casket over to the Surrey, I remember just standing behind a family as this was the first time they had even seen their Marine since he had gone off to Afghanistan. And I remember not knowing what to say. So I just put my hand on the, the dad's shoulder and I just recited the, the 23rd Psalm with him. I didn't know what to say. I've used it before patrols. I've used it before one of our boarding uh, groups went over and boarded a, a, a foreign vessel uh, as we were searching for pirates out in the Gulf of Aden. It has come often to me. Let's read it. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. And I pray that tonight, as we look at this psalm, it would be an encouragement. I pray that as we take a collective sigh of just rest and, and sitting down here, that we would focus our attention on what you have to say. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm is often associated with death. On deathbeds, before funerals, at memorial services. But this psalm is actually a song for the living. And we can see this by looking at its context. Where is this psalm located in its historical context? Well, we find that, historically, it appears that this psalm was written just after David has defeated Goliath. Now, we'll pick up the story shortly after this incredible feat in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll look at verse 55. In 1 Samuel 17, 55, it says this, And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, this captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As thy soul liveth, O king, I, I cannot tell. And the king said, Inquire though thou whose son this stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. So David's coming to Saul the king with this head of Goliath in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son art thou, thou young man? David answered, I am the son of thy servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. The Bethlehemite. Did I get it all in there? He was from Bethlehem. And he's there, and, and if we go then into the next chapter in 1 Samuel 18, it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking this unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 
And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And it's right here where we think, we, people smarter than I that have looked at this, think that this is where Psalm 23 occurs in history. Think of what's going on in David's life. He's just defeated this giant. He has come back, he has, he has almost single-handedly helped Israel defeat the Philistines. The king is asking for David to come to his court. The king's son and him are now best friends. And it goes on, it says, And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is a high day in the life of David. Things are going very well. In that same passage, if we were to keep reading, it goes south very quickly. But right now, the king loves David. The people love David. Jonathan loves David. Everybody loves David. And so we look at this song. And it begins, the Lord is my shepherd. I can only imagine David sits down and he's starting to contemplate and think about the blessings God has given him. And he thinks back to the days when he was there on the side of the mountain watching sheep. But look what it says, the Lord is my shepherd. The juxtaposition of the Lord sovereign with Shepherd. What condescension this is. That the infinite Lord assumes towards his people the office and character of a smelly shepherd. The words are even in the present tense. Whatever be the believer's position, you are now, even right now, under the pastoral care of Jehovah. I tell sailors all the time as they sit in my office and they talk to me and they say, I made a bad choice. I should not be here. I don't want to do this. And I say, I don't want to be irreverent with you, but God is not in his heaven biting his nails saying, hey, what happened, Gabriel? How did this person get here? He's in control. The Lord is my shepherd. You are under right now where you're at, in what part of life you are in, doing what you're God. You are under the pastoral care of an almighty God. And I shall not want. The provision of our shepherd is sufficient. Not only do I not want, look what it says, I shall not want. That's in the future. That's future tense. I like what, Saul, what David says in another passage. I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Why take he thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, 
Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. And he said unto me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We shall not want. Charles Spurgeon, he said, The wicked always want, but the righteous never. A sinner's heart is far from satisfaction, but a gracious spirit dwells in the palace of content. And he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. There's two things here. The first is he maketh me to lie down. The passive, the contemplative, the sustenance of God's word, green pastures, to just sit there and enjoy the word of God and to feast on it. But also there's the active, that he leads me beside the still waters. And if there's that old saying that pertains here is, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. He puts it there in front of you, but you must be active in taking a sip of that water. We need his guidance. He leadeth to help us draw from God's word, but we should drink it in. And he restoreth my soul. When the soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it is sinful, he sanctifies it. And when it is weak, he will strengthen it. He restores my soul. Literally, he causes my life to return to me. He quickens me. He makes me, he makes me alive or causes me to live. It refers to the spirit when it's exhausted, when it's weary, when your spirit is sad. And the meaning is that God quickens he vivifies the spirit when it is exhausted. The reference is not to the soul as wandering or backsliding from God, but to the life or spirit as exhausted, weary, troubled, anxious, worn down with care and toil. The heart thus exhausted, he reanimates it. He brings back its vigor. He encourages it. He excites it to new effort and he fills it with new joy. And he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. The Lord has a vested interest in your righteousness, in your holiness. He leads you in the paths of righteousness, not just so you could just have a righteous life. He leads you there because you represent his name for the sake of his own honor his own authority, his own character, he leads you in that path of righteousness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not the fertile, lush valley as we would think of in verse 2, this is now the valley of darkness, of ruin, of shadow. But look what he says. I will fear no evil. 
for thou art with me. As you look at this passage, I don't want to insinuate anything too negative about David. I remember on my first command, I had to go to an in-call with the uh, commanding officer. And I remember him sitting there looking across. Now, this was, I remember Captain White was about to retire. This was almost 20 years ago, and he was about to retire at 35 years of service. I can only imagine where Captain White is now. But back then, he was old. And I remember him saying across the table, Chapel Long, it's good to have you aboard. Who's the greatest military leader in the Bible? And I remember sitting there thinking, what do I say? And I remember saying, I think it's Joshua, sir. And he says, you're right. I was hoping you would say David. And I said, well, David was a good, a good leader. No, he wasn't. Dereliction of duty. And he starts giving this laundry list of how horrible David was. And I remember thinking, yeah, but he had probably the most, the, one of the greatest titles, a man after God's own heart. Now, I don't think that really says much about David. I think that, I, that idea, that title, is he was a man who pursued God's heart. But David has some pretty bad negative things in his history. So I don't want to say too many things about David that are negative, but as I look at David, I think, and this is just me, this is just my opinion, I think David was a fairly arrogant boy growing up. And here's why. Even his brothers, when he came to come see, give them their, 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 their food from their dad, they said, we know the haughtiness in your heart. We know why you're here. You just want to see the battle. And then what does David do? David's kind of ornery. When he's chasing after Saul and he sneaks up on him in a cave, you know what he does? He pulls a prank on him. He cuts off part of his robe. And then he waits for Saul to leave, and then he comes out and says, Saul, hey, look what I got. Even as the king, he couldn't control his own home. He let his kids run wild. David wasn't the greatest leader when it came to being in the home. And I don't want to say to it, but I think even in David's writings, when David writes this psalm, I think he does something here where he kind of, tongue-in-cheek, he sticks it to the pagans, to the Canaanites. And this is why. He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That word for evil that he uses there is the Hebrew word ra. You say, well, why is that important? That Hebrew word ra, the Hebrew language was very much influenced still by their time in Egypt. And the Egyptian language had the same word ra. And it did not mean evil. It meant, in Egyptian and Canaanite, it was the sun. Ra was the name for the sun. It was midday sun. It was when the sun was in the highest point, when it was bright. 
And, I, and, and, and that had influenced the Hebrew language to the point where they associated Pharaoh with evil. And so now when David is saying, Yea, though I walk through the shadow, even though you think at that time when the shadow is, and when your God, Ra, the sun God, when he's highest, I don't fear him. In fact, the word Pharaoh, Pharah, is the house of the god Ra, or the house of the sun. This is a play on words. David is saying, Ra is evil, you may think he's sun, but even in the land of shadows, your God is not bright enough. And I'm not going to fear it. I can walk even amongst your Canaanite gods, and I'm not scared of a thing. Because God's with me. In other words, David is doing that little kid game of, my God is better than your God. And yeah, I think David put these things into his writings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But David was full of personality. And he says, why will I not fear? Because it's not just that you're with me, but your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When I was in college, I had to read a book called Lessons from a Sheepdog by Philip Keller. In there, he talks about shepherds. Each shepherd boy, from the time he first starts to tend his father's flock, takes special pride in the selection of a rod and staff exactly suited to his own size and strength. I've got three boys. Our youngest boy he hasn't gotten there yet, but our other two boys, we can't go anywhere into the woods without finding a stick. In fact, I have a garage full of sticks of things we've saved and had to come home because one was shaped like a gun. One was shaped like a, a club. It's a stick. A stick is a stick. You've got to have a stick. And shepherds, from when they're boys, they pick out a, a rod, a stick that's suited to their own strength and size. He goes into the bush and selects a young sapling which is dug from the ground. And this is carved and whittled down with great care and patience. The enlarged base of the sapling where its trunk joins the roots is shaped into a smooth, rounded head of hard wood. The sapling itself is shaped to exactly fit the owner's hand. After he completes it, the shepherd boy spends hours practicing with his club, lean, learning how to throw it with amazing speed and accuracy. It becomes his main weapon of defense for both himself and his sheep. The rod, in fact, was an extension of the owner's right arm. It stood as a symbol of his strength, his power, his authority in any serious situation. And then there's the staff. The shepherd's staff is normally a long, slender stick, often with a crook or a hook on one end. It is selected with care by the owner. It is shaped, smooth, and cut to best suit his own personal use. Whereas the rod conveys the concept of authority, of power, of discipline, of defense against danger, the word staff speaks of all that is long-suffering and kind, as that shepherd will use it to gather his sheep in, to scoop them up from crevices and places where they're in danger. Both the rod, the discipline, and the staff, the care, are a comfort to us. 
The psalmist then goes on, he says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock, that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? The word table here is synonymous with feast, meaning he provides for our wants. An allusion to a time when the psalmist was in want. 1 Samuel 21, he ate the holy bread from the tabernacle. David was so hungry. In the presence of enemies or in spite of the enemy so that they are compelled to see the provision of God for his own. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate from one and from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed to my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. Just this past week, I was leaving uh, one of the military bases, and I was at a stoplight. And I, I'm sitting there, and I look out, 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 out my window, and I just see a man sitting there on this little brick wall. And he, he did look homeless, but he didn't have a sign or anything. And I know how some of you all are. I'm the same way. You see them, and then you quickly don't want to make eye contact. He didn't have a sign, and so I just waved. I look at the light as I am... Uh, trained to do, uh, watch that light, be ready to go, when all of a sudden I startled because I look out and the gentleman is right next to my car. I mean, he is in a lane of traffic that's coming, and he, he tells me to roll my window down, and so I roll my window, I don't know why I did that, I pushed the button, I just pushed the button and the window went down, and I said yes, and he says, could I have some money or some food, I'm so hungry. And I don't carry cash. I'm not lying when I say I don't have any money. And I was about to just give him my credit cards because that's all I had. Uh, and I, I just said, I don't have any money. I'm sorry. And I looked down at beside my seat there, and I had a box of delicious moon pies. I mean, they are, that is actually what manna was. If you didn't know that, that's what it was. Moon pies. And if, you, if you're sitting here and you say, I have no idea what a moon pie is, we will have an invitation later. <laughs> I love moon pies. In fact, I love them so much I hoard them until they go bad. <laughs> but I love moon pies. Now, I looked down and I had a choice to make. I could give and depart with my beloved moon pies. And so I picked them up, and I was like, I get moon pies later. So I picked it up, I was like, I'll just give them a moon pie. And I looked down, and there's only two left. And there were many moon pies. I mean, they're like, they're, they're nice little moon pies, all right? Just little snacks. And, uh, and I remember I handed him one, and I said, here, have a moon pie. And then I said, no, no, here, why don't you just take the whole box? So generous of me to give two of them. And I give them to him. You know what he says to me? Oh, sir, I don't need money now. 
Woo, this is the best gift ever. And he literally walks away and he's like, I've got moon pies. And he was, he was happy. And I sat there, I'm like, hmm, I've done a good thing today. <laughs> but there are times in our life when we're hungry and God prepares that table for us. And he gives to us right when we need it. And, and I do believe there's times when God provides our needs. But in he is such a loving father and he knows exactly what we need. But there's times when, you know what? He does give us what we want. He is not a father who just is stingy. As it says over in the Gospels, he's, he's, if you come and ask him for bread, is he going to give you a stone? If you ask him for a fish, is he going to give you a serpent? Your father knows what you have need of. But he goes on in, other, in James, he says, And every good gift, and every perfect gift, gift cometh down from the Father of lights. He gives us what we want. He takes care of us. He anoints my head with oil. The allusion is to the custom of an eastern country to anoint with oil the heads of guests as they would come in. The custom of pouring oil on the head was universal among the Jews. The oil was used, the oil used was sweet oil or oil from olives prepared in such a way to give an agreeable smell. It was also used to render the hair smooth and more elegant. Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink the wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy work. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. It is indicative of prosperity, of divine favor, of joy. And my cup runneth over. Not merely is it full, but it runs over in abundance. God will always provide, and we will never be in want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Through all its changes, throughout every situation, until I depart this world, all the days of my life, God's mercy will chase me. He forgets not his own. He will not give up on me. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, this isn't necessarily eternal life, though that is true. But it is a statement often employed by the psalmist to signify his wish and understanding of the contentment that can be had in this life by being constantly engaged in holy occupations, to be all consumed with serving the Lord, to be in the presence of his glory. But even if he could not be in the presence of his glory, David attested that for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell, dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Lord, I have loved thy habitation 
of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will sing praises unto thee. Selah. Just to dwell and to contemplate and to be consumed with thoughts and meditations of him. We have busy lives. But you're here tonight. And I think there's a piece of a midweek service that allows us to stop during the week and as I pray, just take a collective sigh and say, Lord, what do you want me to know? We can put the business of the world behind us for a few minutes. Tomorrow we're going to go back to work. We're going to carry on the business of our day. We're going to educate our children, and we're going to run them to soccer practice, and we're going to run them to all the different things. But right now, we just focus on him. The language here is obviously taken from the employment of those who had their habitation near the tabernacle. And then afterward, the temple, whose business it was to attend constantly to the service of God, to minister in his courts. We're not, supposed, we're, we're not to suppose of David that he anticipated such a residence in or near the tabernacle or the house of God, but the meaning is that he anticipated and desired a life as if he dwelt there constantly and as if he was constantly engaged in holy occupations. His life would be spent as if it were in the constant service of God. His joy and peace in religion would be as if he were always within the immediate dwelling place of the Most High. This expresses the desire of a true child of God. He wishes to live as if he were always engaged in solemn acts of worship and occupied with holy things. He desires peace and joy in religion as if he were constantly in the place where God makes his abode and allowed to partake of his smiles and his friendship. In a very important sense, it is his privilege so to live even on earth. It will certainly be our privilege to one day dwell with him in heaven. And full of grateful exultation and joy, every child of God may adopt this language as their own and say confidently, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life here, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For heaven where God dwells will be our final eternal home. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would dismiss us with your blessing. 
I pray that we would not just overlook these psalms that so often we have memorized, we've heard, but may we be, may we be reminded that you are a God who provides. You will give us vision, but you will also give us provision, and you'll take care of us. And I pray that we would seek to just rest in you. Father, the world is in turmoil. And before we go back into it, may we arm up with the full armor of God. But may we take this time to come apart and rest in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's Word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.